The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to God's Word. This is Mark chapter 7. Let's read the first 13 verses. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat, lest they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a a hard word, and pray that our hearts would not be hard, that they would be pliable, and that you would root out um, all that is in our heart that is not of you, all that's of the flesh, all the ways we want to try and please you by doing what we think is right, rather than what you've commanded. We pray that, Lord, you'd make this word clear to us and pray that we'd see that you are the authority and you're our lawgiver, you're our king. May we see that you are good and may we love you. I ask in your name, amen. You wonder, what in the world does this have to do with us? I mean, everything was going so well in Mark so far and all of a sudden, you know, you get this ominous words here that, you know, you might just read over in verse 1, but it says, the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes that, who had come from Jerusalem. I mean, word has gotten back to Jerusalem, and they've made the 90-mile hike to bring the big dogs in, and they're going to they're gonna figure out what's wrong with Jesus, because it's obvious that Jesus has issues with authority. It's obvious to these Pharisees and, and uh, scribes that Jesus is not with the program. How many times does tradition occur in those 13 verses? I mean, it's in verse 3, the tradition of the elders, verse 4, the traditions, verse 5, the traditions of the elders, verse 8, the traditions of men, and verse 13, by your tradition. So six times we see tradition, 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 and we all ready to sing Fiddler on the Roof. 
I mean, it is Tradition City. And traditions are good. They can be good. The problem with traditions is, is if we take our traditions and make them binding on everybody, and we take these traditions and all of a sudden you're like, you, you, you have to do it. And as soon as you put the should or the must, that's when the legalism sets in. And the legalism is just, you know, you can have legalism where you're trying to actually attain salvation by law doing or by doing rule doing, but often legalism is just being autonomous. We have an issue not with just breaking God's law. We have an issue with making new laws. We want to make the laws. And that's what's going on here is that they're making all kinds of laws. Where, where are any of these laws in the Bible? that you have to wash and when you come back from a meal and there's nothing about, there's actually a, a real meal going here. There's nothing about sitting down for supper. This is like 11 Z's and most likely they still got their snacks in front of them, which was the 12 baskets left over and they're reaching in, grabbing a, a, a snack and they've got koine hands. They've got common hands. They're defiled. They've got these, you know, they're just reaching in, grabbing a snack, but they didn't, they didn't wash. No baptism, no baptism. That was the word. You didn't wash, verse 4. This word for wash is, they, they expect these baptisms, they do all these baptisms of the, the cups and the bowls and all this stuff, and then there was a certain technique for how you, you baptized your hands and you rinsed them in a certain way, and they're on it. Well, I wonder if we have ever done anything like that ourselves. We have added to the word of God Maybe not so knowingly, but just blindly. I can remember one of my fine moments was sitting down with one of my friends from college. He was actually a roommate. We lived together. He was a very talented drummer. And I laid out very articulately why drums could never be used in a worship service and why his gift was basically out the window. And here this talented drummer who could play any Rush song, you know, was, sorry, you can't use your, your gift in church. And I laid out pretty articulately why, I don't even know what Bible verses I use, but he wasn't real happy on the receiving end of that. I can remember in seminary articulating very clearly to my professor, my homiletics professor, and it's, you know, room full of students, and I told him, you're not preaching unless you have a tie on. And he looked at me and he said, oh, okay. So you're in Africa, you're on a mission trip. Everybody's in a hut. They're all wearing hardly any clothes because it's over 100 degrees. But you, on this mission trip, have to have a, a tie on so that you can be preaching to the people there in Africa. Is that what you're saying to me? And I said, yep. <laughs> Knew that I'd kind of been had on that one, but you kind of have to stick in there, you know? And it got bad. I mean, I could tell you what was wrong with everything, but I remember telling my wife one day that her shoes were worldly shoes. And she didn't take too kindly to that. She wanted to know, what are you talking about? And what's wrong with you? You see, there's something about a legalism that there's no joy in it. There's something off. There's something that smells rotten in the basement, and it's coming up. And kind of the hallmark sign is kind of suspicion. You know, the elder brother comes back. He heard music and dancing. 
And he wasn't going in. Oh, no, I know what's going on there. They're having fun. And he, you know, he was all over that. But there's something bad about it where there's just no jubilee. There's no joy. What did Jesus come to do? What does his first sermon say he came to do? He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to usher in the jubilee. Debt's forgiven, slaves set free, right? We've been, Christ has met all the demands of the law for us, and so now there's this joy, right? But we're not to, we're not to you know, take, take the, uh, you know, this freedom now and use it now as some license to sin, and, you know, but rather we're through to love to, to serve one another. Well, when you get into this kind of mold, and, 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 you know, some of you have grown up in this, you know? I mean, I, I kind of grew up with, with this. My, my grandparents were pretty, they are pretty legalistic. I mean, we, we didn't play any cards on the Sabbath. We didn't watch certain things. I think the TV was kind of stayed off. And I remember as a kid one time, my, my dad's downstairs. He's, he's, sorry, Mom, I'm telling a story. Dad's having a beer down in the basement. We're playing pool. And my, my grandparents showed up. So my mom, you know, quickly just leans down. Hey, Jim, your parents are here, you know? And my dad is just like, whoa! He grabs the beer and books it into, the, into a side room, into a refrigerator, and gets rid of the beer real quick. And, you know, because they, they, somehow I guess they didn't know that he enjoyed a beer now and again. And I thought, you know, what is that really teaching your kids? You know, that, that's... Not good. I remember when I was, early on when I was on staff, first employed at a church, and actually as an intern, the very first time that I was going into the sanctuary, we had what we called the chancel doors. And the chancel doors only open when the choir goes in, because these are, you know, very nice doors, they're in the back, and it's for the chancel choir. And I'm an intern learning the ropes. So I've got my suit and tie on, and as, just as the chancel doors are getting ready to open, the music director looks at me and he says, you didn't button your, your suit. It's like your top button has to be buttoned if you're going up on the chancel. You know, and here I am, an, inter, you know, an intern thinking, man, I thought, I was pretty impressive. I got a suit on, you know? I'm doing pretty good, but no, the top button has to be, you know, buttoned. And so one of the very first Sundays, it was so humorous, I forgot there was an introit of the choir. So the whole choir stands up to do this introit, and they're behind me, and I came up front to do the call to worship. So I come up front, just getting ready to proclaim the word, and they all start singing behind me. It was kind of funny. Everybody was cracking up, but... But my point is, is that there was a lot of like legalism. So I remember one Sunday, or this was actually Christmas Eve service, and in South Carolina, like they take Christmas and and Resurrection Sunday, Easter, like you dress out, you 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 go all out, particularly Easter, but even Christmas Eve is a big deal. And so this particular Christmas Eve service, I had met a homeless guy, and this homeless guy wanted to come to our Christmas Eve service. I'm on staff at the church. He didn't have the threads. So I thought, well, I'm just gonna wear jeans because he doesn't have khakis, he doesn't have a suit. I'll dress down so he'll feel comfortable. So I show up to Christmas Eve service with jeans on. Man, one of the elder's wife just, 
She just blew a gasket. She was aghast. She just let me know, like, you know, you are breeding casualness in worship that breeds to everybody. You're an example for everybody in the church. You know, this church is, you know, very formal. And here you are in jeans. Like, what disrespect and disregard. Well, you start to get the feel of what Jesus is experiencing here, is that Jesus is being introduced or shown that, hey, what's wrong with you and your disciples? Like, you're supposed to be leading these people. And, you, you know, so now they've sent down the scribes, they've got the Pharisees, and here they are. And you can imagine word's gotten back to Jerusalem. And here's, here's the word that's gotten back. We have a guy here that has touched a leper. Is that good or bad? Anybody touch a leper? No. He has a tax collector as one of his disciples. He's gone to an unclean region, the Decapolis, where it's full of pigs, and they actually raise those pigs, touch those pigs, and eat those pigs. And he's touched a ceremonially unclean, bleeding woman who's admitted everything and admitted that she has been bleeding for 12 years, and, he t and she touched him. And he, worst of all, then he touches a corpse of a 12-year-old. Of a and he doesn't keep the Sabbath the way it's supposed to be kept. And so these Pharisees, they're the religious conservatives of their day. They're not the, they're not the Sadducees. That would have been the religious liberals. That would have been the left. This was the right. The right are the Pharisees. And they've had it with Jesus. So they're bringing in the scribes. And the scribes are like the legislative branch. They have the powers to legislate laws, to interpret the laws. They've got some judicial powers along with the Sanhedrin of the big guns. That would have been the Supreme Court in Jesus' day. But the lackeys, so to speak, were the Pharisees who had the influence of executive powers. They just enforced the laws. They carried out the laws prescribed by the scribes. They worked together. Scribes were the, were the professional group. Pharisees were the sect living out what the scribes pres prescribed. And thanks to the scribes, the moral law of 10 had now grown to 613 laws. But wait, there's more. I mean, it just gets, keep adding and adding and adding, and they, they come up with the, the Mishnah, or, and then the, the Talmud, and, and these extra books, and it's all the interpretations of the scribes. And so these Pharisees worked in lockstep with the scribes. They did what the scribes said they should do, and they were respected. Well, the title of the sermons issues with authority because now the scribes have come, the police, the moral police have come in as the Pharisees need some help with some executive powers of governing these legislative laws of the scribes, and it's obvious there's this group of disciples with a rabbi that aren't keeping these laws. And sure enough, they get on site and they see that Jesus is defiled. And we see that's going to be a big message of next week. But you can see in verse 2 and verse 5 that Jesus says that these disciples here, their hands, they were defiled. They eat with defiled hands in verse 5. And then next week when we get to 14 to 23, Jesus is just going to go off on the defiled. I mean, he's going to defile, 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 defile five times. He's going to... Tell us what, what will actually make you defiled. It's what comes out of you, not what goes in you. 
But the Pharisees really thought that Jesus had an authority problem when in reality, and and Matthew's account, which is even a little more humorous, the disciples come back to Jesus after he tells them this, and he says, don't you realize they were offended by what you said? And in reality, who's offended? Jesus. Jesus is the authority. He's the one that's offended that people are not just breaking laws, they're making laws. They're all of a sudden thinking these are now the laws. And they're adding all these things to the word of God. So just for example, this idea of of cleaning your hands and, and, you know, 30 chapters to purification rituals. The, the scribes did. Here's what some of it looked like. There must be water enough to fill one and a half eggshells. The water has to be poured on the hands, which, may be, which must be free of any covering. The hands must then be lifted up so that the water would run to the wrist, therefore make certain that the whole of the hand was washed, was baptized. The water which ran down to the wrist could not be permitted to drip back to the fingers, which were now pure. If anyone performed this rite of hand washing in the morning with the intention that it should apply to the meals of the whole days, it was considered valid. The ritual demanded that the observer sprinkle water on himself before and after eating. And those that were especially pious would even wash between the main course and dessert. Wow. And so you wonder why, you know, as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you will constantly see this refrain of, you have heard it said... But I say to you, Jesus is correcting the oral tradition, not the moral law, but the oral tradition which had come from that, and now he's correcting them. You've heard it said this, and then Jesus has to correct them, saying, no, that, that's wrong. But I say to you. And so Jesus has something to say here, because what we see is three things. We have an attitude problem. We have an accusation problem, but we have an authority problem. And the authority problem really runs all throughout the text, but particularly verses one to four deals with the authority problem. Whose authority? On whose authority will we decide what we're going to do? And so for the scribes and the Pharisees, it was the tradition of the elders. And that led to now an accusation. They begin to be accusing. And so they have an accusation. How come your disciples eat with defiled hands? They don't follow the tradition of the elders. And this will then lead to an attitude problem. Well, let's just kind of think through this a little bit in our day, in our culture. Where in the world could we still have some residue of legalism? Well, I just kind of wrote a little list of things I've heard over the years. Many at this church, unfortunately, but we're working well in process. But here's just some examples of things that, and and most of these are all good things. The problem is when you put the must or should. So, and some of these are just common expressions, like cleanliness is next to godliness. Sound good? Where is that in the Bible? Nobody should have a smartphone until they're 16 years old, maybe older. No parent should send their children to public school. Christians should never watch an R-rated movie. Social media does more damage than good. Christians should never have any debt. Christians should never place a bet. Christians shouldn't be members of any particular political party. You shouldn't eat anything with high fructose corn syrup in it. 
you should be exercising at least three times a week. You should have a confession of sin in every worship service. Worship songs should never be sung in the first person singular. I always just like to put the psalms to this. Give it the psalm test. That just takes out a third of the psalms right there. Our songs shouldn't repeat themselves. Well, that, Psalm 136, get rid of that one. You should uh, sing a traditional hymn to the original tune in every worship service. You should wear a tie if you're leading in worship service, especially if you're distributing communion. Only the pastors or elders should be reading scripture in the worship service, and women shouldn't be reading scripture publicly in a worship service. You just snipped 1 Corinthians 14 out of your Bible. Throw that one away. You shouldn't ever sing a Hillsong song or a Bethel song, because if you do, you're guilty by association. We shouldn't be greeting one another in a worship service. When you start using screens in worship, people stop bringing their Bibles to church, and that's the beginning of biblical ignorance. We should be using hymnals, or at least putting the music score in the bulletin. People should know how to read music, and those who do know how to read music should be rewarded. And preachers should only preach expository sermons, not topical sermons, systematic sermons, or biblical theology sermons. You have to say grace before you eat. Everybody should go to college after high school. You should never have a TV in your bedroom. You should never read on your phone before you go to bed. You should never have wine at a wedding. Now that's really humorous. What's the first miracle of Jesus? <laughs> You should tithe on your gross income and not your net income. You should use the Lord's Prayer in every worship service, because my former church did it every Sunday. We should be reciting more creeds. We should sing the doxology or Gloria Patra. And what would happen if we did not have Silent Night with candles at the end of the Christmas Eve service? There'd probably be a riot in this place. We get into traditions. The problem is, is what happens when we impose that now, top down? Where was any of that in the Bible? I mean, you might be able to formulate some, some things, and that might be good practices for your family. Your family might be on lockdown with your router in your house, and nobody is allowed to access the internet unless they go through your lockdown router, but then you make that a rule for every family should do that in their home. If you're just a good parent, that's what you do. Well, really? Just give me the rule. Just, just make it easy for me so I can just... And then nobody has to really wrestle with the real issues because we're bypassing the heart, and it's the heart that needs to bypass surgery. It's the heart that is the issue. And so Jesus turns the tables, and he says to these Pharisees and to these scribes, huh, and, and basically... He, he, there's a sarcasm in verse 9. It's pretty jarring, isn't it? When he says, you have a fine way. you got a fine way of rejecting the commandments. Like, that was really good, guys. Fine way of rejecting. I mean, that would be like us saying in our day, nice one, grand, smooth move, beautiful, way to go, slick one. Aren't you special? You're really something, aren't you? I mean, Jesus is letting them have it. And the reason he's letting them have it is he's saying, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me, far. And when we start moving towards form rather than substance and have all these rules and, and this is the way it has to be, 
what happens. I mean, isn't it interesting that this very prophecy from Isaiah 29, I'm reading through Isaiah right now, and you get all these different areas where Isaiah is is rebuking and bringing down judgment in all these different nations, Babylon, all these different surrounding countries, and then he rebukes the, the northern kingdom. But meanwhile, the southern kingdom, I mean, we're doing it right. We're God's people. We've got the covenant. We're doing it right. It was to them that this passage laid the boom on because they, they thought they were so much better than all the surrounding areas and certainly better than the northern kingdom. And Isaiah says, no, you honor me with your lips. You sing the songs in worship. You recite the, the, the verses. But is your heart engaged? Do you love what you're singing? I mean, think about it. Like the Super Bowls tonight. Very few of you, and I know who you are, that are really big fans of one team or the other, okay? Now, there's a couple of you that I know, and then somebody even brought a little Philadelphia Eagles attire that's kind of hidden, but it, it can be seen this morning. <laughs> there's a few of you that are really attached to your team. We won't name any names, um, but we know who we're referring to, and I see the Cinnies over there. They were wearing their Philly gear yesterday. So... And then there's a few Chiefs fans probably, but most of us probably go to the game tonight, watch the game, and we just want a good game. We want a good game. We're not attached to one team or the other. We're not going to be like really into this. Like we don't know the stories of the history of these teams. We don't know the GM. We don't know their philosophy of how they made up their roster. We don't know the stats of, you know, who's got the number one offense, who's got the number one defense. Who are, the, you know, who are the players that make up? Who are the people that are the, you know, all pro? You know, how much these contracts are and the, and the backstories behind them. And you know, most of us know none of that, right? But there's a few of you that it's, when it's your team and you've lived in the history of you love that city, you followed that team for a long time, you know and this is hard for Eagles fans because their previous coach was Andy Reid and three of the best players on the team were from Andy Reid's generation. So his, it's like Andy Reid is playing himself tonight. You know, he's got a couple of these players that he drafted. He's got to face one more time. But for those people that are into this, they're all in. They're all in. Well, let me ask you this. Were you all in this morning to worship? Are we just going to kind of, I just hope, I'm just glad, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I love the crowd, love good fellowship, greeting people, eat some snacks. It's kind of nice, but I'm not really into it because it's not really my thing. I don't really know all that's involved. I don't really, you know, I don't really get into all that. That would be vain worship then. We would be just honoring him with our lips, but our hearts aren't into it. But if we're into this, then our hearts are attached to this. And when he's not honored, you're hurt by that. When he's not loved, when people are now turning things towards tradition, what Jesus is noting here is look what happens. As soon as you start to leave the one or hold to the one, you're leaving the other. So if you try to supplement the gospel or you supplement to the law, if you try to add anything to it, what do you do? you take away from it. If you add anything to it, you ruin it. You don't go into a museum with your little paint kit to touch up a Rembrandt. You'd ruin it. 
You don't add your pen to sign over a nice autographed baseball. There's only 500 of them, but I thought I would sharpen it up a little bit by signing it a little better so it would be a little better ink. You'd ruin it. You don't go to a nice restaurant, really nice restaurant, and ask the waiter for some ketchup. You ruin, you, you, you disgrace the people that brought you, right? What happens when you do this, where now you're leaving, you're, you're holding up the traditions of men, and you're leaving the commandment of God, you're establishing your tradition, and you're rejecting the commandment of God. And then he gives a very good case in point. He says, you've got this fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, but you have this thing called Corbin, which is this Hebrew word for gift, and, and you just say to your, you know, you've gotten the blessing that if you've committed this thing and made a vow, because, you know, you can't vow and then break your vow, it's better not to vow than to, than, than not, than to vow and not fulfill it. So if you've made a vow that I will give all that is mine, my house, whatever, you give all this and I will give it to God when I die, it's all his. Meanwhile, your mother or father needs help now, and they need your help, but you tell them, sorry, that's all tied up. It's Corbin. It's all been devoted to God so that when I, I can't help you now, it's, it's committed to God, and when I die, it all goes to, the, to God. So what happens to the parents? They don't get any help, but what happens to the individual? There's no loss. There's no sharing of burden because it's all in the future. I'm gonna, <laughs> it's all God's because it doesn't any sacrifice to me. It's all tied up in you know, investments. And so it worked nicely. But the, meanwhile, people aren't being, the big, there were two big problems with what's going on here with the tradition of the elders or the scribes or the Pharisees. What are the two big problems? Well, they're not loving God because they're now in vain worshiping him and just worshiping with lips, but hearts are far from him. So we've got huge problems with the first commandment. But then the second commandment, the second problem is you're not loving your neighbor, which is your parents. And now you have these fine ways of like getting around it by, by there's always a law that you can come up with to keep you from relieving people mercifully. There'll always be a law. And we're good at it. So the problem is, is when you're kind of in that environment and, and much the whole book of Galatians, the whole book is addressing this. And Paul is angry. I mean, he, the, this is his first epistle and the first things out of his mouth. You know, Paul, an apostle, you know, called from God and not from men. You know, there's no greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I mean, just boom, I'm an apostle, not from men, you know, but from God. And he's on the, the aggressive because these people were actually now saying, well, you, you, you got to have Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus this big law from Moses. If you do that, then you're acceptable to God. And as soon as you start throwing that must in there and then the should and that you got to have this, and Paul's like, that's another gospel. To supplement is to supplant. That's another gospel. And so when he ends the book, he says this, and he gets at the motivations of why people do this. Listen to this. This is Galatians 6, 11, or 12 to 14, 15. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So they want to make a good showing in the flesh in order that, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised themselves do not keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And what Paul's saying is this external focus is now what the Galatians were doing, was try, as John Piper says, is trying to win strokes and avoid pokes. Avoiding persecution, but then winning favor with others by looking good outwardly. That, hey, we're making all these converts. Look at all this is happening. And basically what happens to these people is they become a pawn to prop up the Pharisaical system. And you become a pawn in the system. And the young people, they, they know it. They sniff it a long way, and that's part of the reason they're checking out of the church, is they don't want to be a pawn propping up some pharisaical system. Now, granted, as I, you know, as I learned when I first started to drive, if we ever ran off the road, and my dad would actually make us go off the road a little bit and purposely drive the shoulder. Why would he do that? Well, I know a lady in Greenville that personally wrecked two cars and flipped them. From she went over on the shoulder and she did the quick yank. Gotta yank it back on the road fast. Flipped the car. Not once, but twice. Completely flip overs. And, and it's the Luther illustration. You fall off the horse, you get back on, you fall on the other side. What's the best way to crash a car? Go off the road and yank it back on the road as hard as you can. Or do a double yank. Yank it once and then yank it again. It's the, always the second one. Boy, that'll get an SUV flipping in a hurry. And so we tend to yank. And so the young people tend to say, well, I'm done with it. I'm out of church. I'm out of here. Is that a good reaction? That's just an oversteer. And we tend to vacillate to the other side. Well, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. Well, that's not right either. I'm not saying you should... Avoid church, or, but we have to seek the Lord, and we have to get out this accusation that we tend to want to make these laws and have people conform to different systems. We always have to go back and say, the whole big deal of the Reformation was responding to all these things that were added to the Word of God in the Catholic Church. You start having to, you know, do certain signs and pray certain prayers and pray to saints and have all these things and... And we're like, where's that in the Bible? But the big principle of the Reformation was always reforming. Always reforming. Are we reforming? Or is that somehow stopped? That means we got to look today. Where am I? My tendency is I want to make a law. I want to be, be autonomous. That just means a law to myself. I want to establish laws that go beyond Scripture. That's natural in us. And we constantly have to say, wait a minute, I'm always reforming. So he's got to come back on that. These can be good principles, but am I re now requiring them on everybody? Because that would lead to not loving God and not loving neighbor. And so I want to close with just getting at the heart of the issue here. And so much of the prophets were always calling out the vain worship, right? And Isaiah, Malachi, they're constantly, you know, even Joel, <clears throat> you know, rend your heart. Not your garments. Give me your heart. And the first great awakening under the, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived was George Whitfield. 
And he has this famous sermon, I've quoted this before, from Jeremiah, it's called, and the, the sermon is titled, The Method of Grace. And what he's getting at in this, this message is we want to go towards our duties. We want to fly towards, instead of resting in Jesus, we want to run from Jesus, but actually run to our works. And so as soon as we start to get awakened by the gospel, we try to fix it ourselves. But the great promise of the Bible is that God says he's going to cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. He's going to give us a new heart, put a new spirit in us, remove a heart of stone from our flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in with, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. And so the issue is really, what is the heart? You know, you, you, we know when we weed our garden, you can't just pull the tops. You have to get to the roots. Here's what Whitfield says. He says, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not be troubled for, for the sins of your life. You must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, the sins of your nature, but likewise for the sins of your best duties and performances. When a poor soul is, is somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then a poor creature, the poor creature being born under the covenant of works, flies directly to a covenant of works again. As Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and performances to hide himself from God and goes to patch up a righteousness of his own. Says he, I'll be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do all I can. And then certainly Christ will have mercy on, on me. But before you can speak peace to your heart, you must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. You must be brought to see that all of your duties, all your righteousness, as the prophet eloquently expresses it, put them all together, are so far from recommending you to God, are so far from any, being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul that he will see them to be filthy rags, a menstrual cloth, that God hates them and cannot away with them if you bring them into, to him in order to recommend you to his favor. I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot preach to you or to others, but I sin. I can do nothing without sin. And as one expresses it, my repentance wants to be repented of and my tears to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your heart, you must not only be made be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your your self-righteousness because it's the last idol taken out of your heart. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if you've never felt you had a righteousness of your own, if you never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you cannot come to Jesus Christ. There's a great many who now say, well, we believe all this, but there's a great difference between talking and feeling. Did you ever feel the want of a dear Redeemer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to you alone we cling. Your blood and your righteousness is our only hope. And Lord, we just confess that we're so quick 
and our natural tendency is to move towards self and what we can do to fix it when there's a problem. What we can do to make sure it won't happen again. And often in doing that, we haven't looked to the remedy that you have for us. Your blood and your righteousness. Lord, forgive all of our, our sins, but most of all, the sins of somehow thinking that all we do would somehow amount to something. That we would demand you to have mercy upon us or to reward us based on our merit. Lord, forgive us. Help us to be lovers of Christ. We pray that there will be a jubilee in our church as we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That we would know that our Lord has done everything for us, that it is truly finished. It's been paid in full. We thank you, Lord, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, for everyone who believes. It is through one man's obedience, through Christ, that the many are made righteous. So, Lord, we come today clinging to him. May that be our joy. Help us to proclaim that and love that and live that. We ask in your name. Amen.